ladies and germs. I'm Jeremy Vaney. Welcome to our Undoing Radio. And this week, uh, we have with us Master Hypnotist. Is he a master or just a hypnotist? James Hazlerig. He's a fascinating dude in his own right. And if you want to keep up with his latest endeavors, I'll have a link to what he's up to right now in the show description. Um, I originally wanted to have him on, as I said in the preamble to last week's episode, this was taped months ago. So before the insurrection. So I wanted to have him on to talk about QAnon and hypnosis and subliminal messaging. But it was prior to the insurrection, which is why that never comes up. So if it seems odd to you that that doesn't come up, that's why. Um, but uh, my wife, Carol, and I had watched a quote-unquote documentary, really a propaganda piece put out by QAnon people that is like, get everyone who you want interested in QAnon to watch this. This is it kind of thing. So we decided, eh, let's watch it and see what gar- hot garbage it is. And sure enough, it's hot garbage. And there's a lot of like just sort of overt uh, filming techniques that went into it, but th- that are propaganda, you know, techniques. But there was also, uh, I mean, at one point, you know, they, they just start rifling through all of these unlinked things, um, conspiracy pieces that they form a picture. But at the same time that they're forming the picture, they're telling you to do the research to form your own picture. That way you'll feel like it's coming from you. Um, but one of these things they mentioned was MK Ultra, which was a, I think, CIA uh, program, um, you know, where they were experimenting on people with various awful things. And one of these was uh, putting subliminal messages in low frequencies, in low frequency tones to try to influence behavior or control people or whatever that is. So they mentioned this. And while they're mentioning this, and throughout the whole movie, you realize they're actually playing some sort of low-frequency tone, like in the music, that one wonders if, much like their master Donald Trump, they are just saying what they're doing and claiming it's someone else. Um, so I wondered about that, because both Carol and I walked away with headaches. And I mean, this is just something that we watched on TV from YouTube, and... I don't get, you know, headaches from like flashing images and tones and things like this usually. But we both walked away feeling sick. And so I wondered, you know, is well, we both wondered, but I wondered enough to interview James Hazelrig. Um, although I don't ask him explicitly about it, but just, you know, essentially, can these things can people put together a propaganda piece in a way that, you know, accomplishes this i mean essentially what this would do if you were to fall for it would be to tell you how the world works make you feel like you're in on the big secret make it feel like it comes from you this knowledge uh and also make you feel sick at the same time which is pretty powerful when you think about it so i just want to know what what his take on all that is um And I was surprised by his answer, and I think you might be too. So let's get to it. Hypnosis, QAnon, advertising, subliminal messaging. Oh, all of it, all of it, all of it. Let's hear about it right now, and keep in mind that um, there is a way out of all of this, which is to just turn it off. I mean, right? So there's that. Now here's James Hazelry. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome to the program, James Hazelrig. James, thank you for doing this. Much appreciated. Oh, thank you for having me, Jeremy. Um, So before we get into uh, how we're potentially being hypnotized, let's just lay the groundwork so we're all on the same page. What is hypnosis? Well, if you ask a dozen hypnotists to define hypnosis, you're going to get 18 definitions and a fist fight. Um, (laughs) But I'll, I'll go ahead and give you um, sort of my, my way of looking at it. Hypnosis, I, I consider to be the art of getting real results from imaginary events. Um, so if you've ever cried while watching a movie, 
um, then you've had a hypnotic experience because you go into the movie, your conscious mind knows the movie isn't real, but your unconscious mind um, takes over. The conscious mind pretty much takes the break. The part of you that is sort of the fact checker, or um, I like to think of it as the internal map maker, actually, that checks to see, does this new idea fit with my idea of reality? And, and so it's not, it doesn't really determine truth. It just determines whether or not a new idea fits. And um, that part of you pretty much takes a break, for instance, when you watch a movie. Um, and so then watching that movie, you know, the people on the screen aren't really married to each other. You know, uh, that's not really their child. That's not really their dog. The dog didn't really die. You know that when you go to watch a movie, but man, it doesn't matter when the dog dies, everyone cries because the unconscious mind accepts it as reality. And so when we're doing uh, hypnosis, just the way that, that the unconscious mind in a movie can produce real emotion, real sadness, real tears, we get real physical results in some cases, in other cases, real um, mental or spiritual or intellectual results from imaginary scenarios. So that, that's how I define hypnosis itself. Um, it's not, it's not the spooky, weird thing that most people think that it is on, uh, when you see it on television. Well, and part of that spooky weirdness is that I think at least a lot of people believe that the origins come from the world of spooks, the world of the CIA and military uh-huh. operations and that sort of thing. Is that wrong? Well, uh, it, it doesn't really come from that, though it did certainly wander through um, and there was a, a hypnotist in the mid 20th century named George Estabrooks who published a lot of really fascinating claims saying that he could uh, hypnotize a super spy to, to be the perfect sleeper agent, to not even know what he was doing. And people vary in their degree of, of I like to say talent, other people say susceptibility or suggestibility. Um, people vary in their, their degree uh, to talent to, to achieve hypnotic phenomena. So yeah, theoretically, I guess it might maybe be possible that Esther Brooks was able to pull this off, but, um, hypnosis itself really has very little to do with that kind of thing. Um, now, it, it, it's funny, when you first said the world of spooks, I, I thought of, uh, it actually has some early connections to spiritualism. Hmm. Um, the word the word seance actually was originally the term that we used to refer to a hypnosis session, or, or before we even called it hypnosis, we called it mesmerism or animal magnetism. And seance and session both just mean a sitting. Um and and there's definitely trance work involved in each of them. And and a trance, again, trance is one of those words that people argue on the definitions. And for a long time, I could not define it. But I, I feel that a trance is an experience where one part of your mind has become dissociated from another part. So... Um, or, or we might say that your attention is associated so much into one part of your experience that the other parts are dissociated. They seem far away. For example, when watching a movie, uh, people are often so caught up in their experience of uh, the movie that they essentially forget the, uh, their, their physical body. Um, they forget what's going on around them. In fact, they get really annoyed if somebody next to them turns on their phone or starts talking or making too much noise because they want to be fully associated into that movie. Well, in a, in a hypnotic trance, um, a person is often very associated to their internal experience. Um, and so they may forget their body. And in the real extreme forms, you, you get, you know, cases where people 
one part of their mind becomes dissociated and starts engaging in automatic writing or saying things that they didn't expect or think could happen. So that that the spiritualists um, went for having a a trance. They didn't call it hypnotic, but there was a lot of similarity in the early days of spiritualism that that really drew from mesmerism and hypnosis, the way that it was done in the 1800s. The thing is that over time, hypnotists have come to realize that um, it's not really so much about entering into a distinct dissociated trance state, because we go in and out of different mental states all the time. It's, it's really more the idea that everyone is in a kind of a trance all the time. And as hypnotists, we guide them from a, a harmful trance, harmful to them, to a useful trance, a trance that's, that's more beneficial to them. Because we, we all live in this kind of hologram within our minds. All right. That is the direction I want to go. But first, I want to derail you with a question. Uh, which is, have you seen any evidence that, um, that type of hypnotic trance group concentration, seancing, that sort of thing, uh, has effects on things in the room? Um, or is that a bridge too far? That, that, well, I mean, I, I think that's a bridge too far. I have had, I've had a few, you know, kind of slightly spooky experiences with hypnosis. Um, but I, I, I mean, the truth is that the spiritualist table tapping and that kind of thing has, as you know, it was debunked back when it was happening. Um, and I, I think that debunking holds true. Now, um, there is a really interesting Thing that, that, again, was explored a lot in the 1800s and, and helped form a lot of our ideas, actually, about the unconscious mind. Um, the modern hypnotists, we call it idiomotor action, um, which is thought motion. Um, they, they call it mental reflex, back when Benjamin Carpenter was writing about it in the, the uh, mid-1800s. And that's that if you think about something, your body starts to make it real. And it can do it in incredibly subtle ways. One of my favorite demonstrations, I take out a stick that has three pendulums of different lengths. And I order those pendulums to move around in different patterns. I can even get all three going in different patterns at the same time. So one's going clockwise, one's going counterclockwise, and the other one's going front to back or side to side. And the the uh, the conscious mind doesn't know how to jiggle my hands and the tiny little vibrations that make that happen. Well, one thing they would do at seances is everybody would put their hands on the table and concentrate. And they found that they could get a, a pendulum in the middle of the table They'd often suspend it inside a bottle. They could get it to start tapping the inside of the bottle. Hmm. And, and of course, when you concentrate in that way, you, you take a deep breath, you relax, you go into a meditative state, which is a form of trance. You focus your attention on one thing. So in that sense, trance can make things happen around the room. And, and I'm not going to say that Absolutely never. It's impossible, but I, I generally haven't experienced anything that couldn't be explained, um, at, at least not in terms of physical phenomena. Okay. Well, de- derailment over. Uh, so <laughs> the, the question <laughs> I have really is, you know, it's a fundamental question of what we are is, as people as beings uh, in the world, which is we tend to say that we are, that I'm me, right? And and so there's a solidity to that. But really, I guess, are, are you saying that we're actually a bunch of, we're more fluid than that. We're a bunch of sort of states that we waft in and out of. Is that fair? Yeah, I think that's, that's accurate uh, to say. And I mean, we, uh, we take on, different uh, personas 
at different times and, and we shift in and out of them very easily. Uh, I'm, I speak differently to my mother than I do to my sister, than I do to my wife, than I do to, um, you know, some of my male buddies. Um, I, I shift into a different persona when I'm on stage and performing versus when I'm doing a hypnosis session for somebody who's, you know, getting over the fear of needles and to a, uh, to, to just make that a little bit more distinct, we can do what in hypnosis is often called parts therapy, where you kind of sit down and talk to the different parts of your personality. And it's, it's metaphorical. And of course, the really extreme cases are multiple personalities, where they're, they're going through really intense state changes um, to essentially become different people. Because who you are, your identity, it's, it's a story that you've told yourself. And it's, it's a set of, of um, parameters as to how you have concluded that the world works. Right. Well, and so there's that issue of the self, and then there's the issue of, um, well, I guess getting back to the movie analogy, I mean, you, when you're watching movies, you're in a certain state. When you're, If you're a writer, uh, an artist, an athlete, you go into different zones of concentration yep. and attention um, and so on and so forth. When you daydream, that's different than paying attention to someone talking. When you're dreaming at night, that's different than being awake. So, exactly. But we compartmentalize these things into just awake and asleep, which doesn't make sense because awake seems to be various states of attention. If you want to call them sleep, okay. But uh, but that uh, the totality of that is what a person is. And so the other thing that we think of, I, th- I think, most people think of, um, well, not hypnosis, but subliminal messaging and advertising, you know, putting the word sex in ice cubes in a vodka ad in a, you know, magazine or something like that, or, or you know, Disney doing uh, sexual stuff in the background of an image. Um, has, well, is there evidence that that type of messaging works? And if so, uh, how has that evolved that you're aware of? So, um, I've, I've, I've looked at this, I've even uh, done a few experiments with it and I cannot find, um, a lot of really clear evidence that that's an effective way, uh, for instance, for advertisers. And believe me, if it, if it doesn't work, advertisers aren't going to do it. Uh, they, they are all about what really works. Um, but there are, there are some other very subtle ways, um, I would say, that um, we're all being influenced all the time. Uh, and that's, that's really what's fascinating to me. I think that subliminal messages, it, it seems really spooky and really cool, but I'm, I, I think it's almost a metaphor for how things are really being done. Okay. Uh, well, let me. Yeah, let me just throw this at you. So, one of the states I think that is new uh, to us is staring at a cell phone. The state of mind. I mean, I guess it's close to a movie and TV, but it's really like people walk around or drive or just yeah. sit, <laughs> staring at this, paying attention to this thing in their hand, and also trying to stay conscious of the world around them. Does that split? of attention uh is there some effective means of um communicating something controlling people essentially in that split state or is that a bridge too far because as you're talking i'm thinking hmm maybe there's no subliminal messaging going on in things like QAnon or uh online you know i don't know propaganda type stuff maybe it is just simply if you're in a state of attention focused on the thing that you actually want, <laughs> that you actually desire, uh, <laughs> then you'll believe any dumb thing about it. Well, yeah. I mean, the, so a lot of hypnotists characterize trance or hypnosis as a state of enhanced suggestibility. Um, and, and it is true that when you when you get really focused on something that in that internal map maker um often 
takes a break like it does at the movies. And so as you, as you think things, especially as you go into that kind of meditative state, and, you, and you're right, but the, the state of staring at the phone is very similar to the state of staring at the television or the movie screen, which is very similar to the state of reading a book. Um, you know, those of us who like to read books look down on all those people with their phones, but it's, it's a very similar kind of activity. And all of them um, take us away from what, what is around us into a kind of imaginary world. Um, an imaginative state where, where we're no longer checking a lot of ideas to see if they fit with our map. Um, and that, you know, that I want to say a few words about that map. We all live essentially within our map of reality. And we, we think that it is reality. And even those of us who are really into this philosophy of recognizing that it's not reality, we have a really tough time not just considering it to be reality. And yet, ultimately, the, the map that we've built of the world is only what our 17 or so senses tell us. And we know that those senses are limited. For example, we know there are wavelengths that our eyes can't see. So, um, the experience that I have is very different from the experience that my dog has. Uh, my dog sees different wavelengths um, and probably a more limited range, but my dog can smell chemicals that I can't smell. Um, in fact, between humans, there is a great deal of variety in our sensory acuity. Um, there's a, a fascinating experiment that proved that as people age, they lose the ability generally to hear higher pitches. Um, and in fact, uh, someone took advantage of this and figured out a pitch that teenagers could hear that 20 somethings couldn't and made a phone app so that teenagers can sit there and hold a conversation in class and their teachers can't hear it. Huh. So, so what is reality? It, reality is this, this illusion, this map that our brain has created out of our senses. And the thing is that we're taking in all kinds of information, but our conscious mind can't handle nearly as much information as our senses are taking in. So we filter. Um, and, and it's an unconscious process. So the unconscious mind essentially filters what it is that's, that it thinks is important. So, for instance, you could have the sound of the refrigerator going for hours, that compressor, and when it kicks off and suddenly things change, then you notice the sound because you notice the lack of it. Right now, you're not thinking about how the big toe on your left foot feels. But now you are. That information was right there for you. So the, the catch is that these filters become based on our beliefs. They become based on what fits with the maps that we already have. So when we encounter a new idea, we, we go, wait, does this sound believable? Um, and we think what we're detecting is whether or not it's true, <laughs> but it, we're not. We're detecting whether or not it fits with our map of reality. So when, when we encounter ideas, we generalize them, right, to create, uh, take a bunch of individual cases and make um, general statements about the world. Uh, we distort ideas. We say, okay, we're going to fit this one in. Um, we're going to twist this to fit my narrative, right? We're all, all familiar with, with political spin, mm -hmm. right? And, um, and we're going to delete certain things um, from our experience because 
we've decided that they're not important or that they don't uh, that they don't fit with our view of the world. And we've all had the experience where you, you think about buying a particular kind of car and all of a sudden everybody's driving that car. It's all over the place. Uh, when, when I decided to buy the car that I bought most recently, 10 or 12 times a day, you know, and, and this was, and I don't spend a lot of time driving in a city, but I ended up right next to one of those cars of the same make and model that I wanted um, because my filters were looking for them. So you apply this to something like QAnon um, or almost any political viewpoint and you're going to start looking for things that fit. Even scientists watch out for what they call confirmation bias. Um, scientists are allowed, if there's one bit of data that just doesn't fit everything else, they're allowed to throw it out. Um, but if they do it too much, then pretty soon they're just confirming what they already thought was going to happen. And they're distorting the facts that don't fit. They're deleting the ones that, that really, really don't fit. And, and this is just how our brains work. So it's almost impossible for us to really um, resist unless we, we work hard to, to be aware of it and to challenge our biases and to train ourselves um, to, to stick with logical thinking. But, but even then, it's very difficult. Well, the thing that's confounding to me about QAnon is that it's inane in a way that is obvious. Like, if you look at the basic structure of a, the conspiracy theory, which is basically, you know, the equivalent of there's lizard people <laughs> controlling the world and sucking off the fear of children, uh, bathing in the blood of babies, or whatever it is, like, that is something that I can see how somebody could study a bunch of propaganda material and and go down a paranoid rabbit hole and end up there i can i can actually see how that would happen but i can't see the part where if you know anything about donald trump he's the hero in this because you have to shut off everything else you know about donald trump suddenly he's a hero to children and so i gotta wonder i mean is it possible because there are a lot of people who claim that they were not trump people before they started reading this QAnon thing they're not really interested and somehow, in fact, this has weaved its way into holistic medicine, of all things, that it's going after almost a new age crowd now, as opposed to like a fundamentalist religious crowd, although they have shared traits. So I'm wondering, right. do you think that that is, I mean, is it is it possible for or probable for, you know, a million people to shut off that part of them that knows that, well, wait a minute, Donald Trump is just basically like a criminal and a dummy who has weaseled his way into office and used, you know, being white and rich, you know, to maintain power, like what he's done all of his life. Do we just shut that off? Or is there something, is there like a type of subliminal messaging that's going on or, or something else that like sticks with you to where you're willing to overlook all of that and just, you know, follow the mantra of do the work and you'll come to the same conclusions I did. They all say the same, the same slavish cultish things. Yeah, well, you know, and that that's a that's a fascinating question, and um, QAnon is is complicated, and and I I won't claim to be an expert on it. There are a number of things, a number of psychological factors, I think, at work that have made it almost the the super virus of conspiracy theories. Um, to to start with, a, a conspiracy theory, in, in my opinion, is based on, or, or maybe to rephrase this, a conspiracy theorist is someone who would rather believe that the world is run by evil than by incompetence. <laughs> that is a great way to put it, yeah. So, you, you know, and and I, I've come to realize many times, well, yeah, no, an awful lot of it is run on incompetence. 
there are, I mean, there are people doing nefarious things, and I'm sure that occasionally they join together in in uh, a conspiracy, you know, keeping it secret that they're doing nefarious, terrible things. Um, so, so you, you start just with that, and you start with this feeling that something's not quite right, and you you reject something about what we've been told. Maybe um, what happens is you you realize, wow, you know what? Uh, that George Washington and the cherry tree story, that's, that's not true. That's actually propaganda that I got taught in school, right? And that's, that's a reasonable thing. But then you start saying, well, what else did they teach me that wasn't true? Um, I think at some point, everybody goes back to, hey, turned out Santa Claus wasn't real. Why did I believe that? Maybe I've been believing all sorts of ridiculous things. And, and you get what we call the, uh, um, the frog boiling effect. If you want to boil a live frog, the first thing you have to do is catch a live frog. Then you put a pot of water right out, out of the tap onto the burner and you put the frog in it. And the frog goes, oh, hey, it's water. It's nice. I like this water. Swims around in it. Doesn't jump out. Then you turn the heat up to one. The frog doesn't really notice this gradual increase of heat. It's just fine. Then you turn the heat up to two. It doesn't notice that gradual increase. Eventually, the water is boiling and the frog is boiling in it. So it's baby steps that lead people. And when they talk about going down the rabbit hole, um, you know, but the, the first thing that Alice noticed was just, hey, there's a rabbit over there. And then she's like, okay, something's slightly odd about that rabbit. He's wearing a waistcoat. Oh, he has a pocket watch. Oh, he's talking. Oh, he's in a hurry. Right? And so if you start to to reject the things we've been told which i i think is it, it's good it's it's uh, the healthy kind of skepticism to to you know recognize okay maybe maybe there have been attempts to influence us and this is by the way why i think it's beginning to to seep in to holistic medicine and the new age thinking um anyone who's into some sort of alternative uh, healing practice has at some point questioned Western medicine. And to some degree rejected it. Now, some people are like me and we say, hey, Western medicine, it's not perfect. Um, but it has done a lot of great things. And while you should always be your own advocate, it's, it's pretty smart also to pay attention to what some very educated people have worked out with Western medicine. But there's also people within my field and, and many allied fields um, that have gone, no, no, it's all nonsense. It's all nonsense. Don't get a vaccine, <laughs> right? And and so they, they go, um, you know, a full 180. They, they go from all of this stuff about Western medicine or about American history or about whatever we've been taught it's true, they go to, it's all false, which is just as an extreme, as extreme a view as it's all true. And so they start believing a few little things, right? Maybe even some of those things are half truths. And they start changing their map. Now, QAnon has the added benefit that it essentially is kind of a game. So people get this excitement. Um, when you have a sense of, of suspense, you actually get dopamine rushing into your brain. Uh, if you see a tiger, you get dopamine because you're paying close attention to it. So we, we kind of want that, that feeling of suspense. We want to be piecing things together. It's why lost was so successful um, and ultimately so disappointing. Because when they did explain it all, we all went, ah, no, that can't be it. Well, imagine if Lost went on forever. 
And it kept getting more and more complicated and kept explaining more and more about why your life sucks. Because, oh my gosh, it's not that uh, I'm stuck in a world where people aren't very good at running things and, and, and our, you know, our political system has gone to hell and the climate is, is in danger and all that. No, it's, it's actually because there's lizard people. There's lizard people out there destroying it all, and they're busy uh, molesting children underneath a pizza parlor that is run by Hillary Clinton. You know, it, it's easy to just start stacking in all of these things that become more and more unbelievable. But see, that's the part that I have a problem with, because that's like a continuity right. error, right? Like if in Lost, if in the end of season one, uh, mm-hmm. Abraham Lincoln came in and said, I'm Abraham Lincoln and I control all of this. You'd be like, wait a minute, I'm I'm out. <laughs> this is nonsense. Right. If this isn't part of like, there's not another uh, layer underneath that, then I'm out because this is stupid. And that's kind of what this is. It's like. All of the intrigue of Lost and, and the Dungeons and Dragons type thing. But then you've got to believe either Q uh, of the QAnon, this anonymous person, is John F. Kennedy, who lived and somehow <laughs> is promoting right wing agendas uh, and or Donald Trump is the hero of children. Like these are two just nonsensical things that should wake you out of of the hypnosis. Right. They should be the, the part where you go, oh, that just broke the fourth wall for me. I'm out. Instead, right. But, but, but remember, but remember the frog boiling. Remember the frog boiling. That's the thing as you gradually drag people along and back to Alice in Wonderland. She says, I can't believe that. And the queen says, you haven't had enough practice. Then I believe nine impossible things before breakfast. <laughs> uh, and and that's what it does is it, it trains you to get better and better at believing these impossible things. So when when you go to a stage hypnosis show, for example, um, in fact, you could think of QAnon as a giant stage hypnosis show. So they've got, let's say, 300 people in that audience. Um, the hypnotist comes out, explains a few things, maybe does a big group demo. And he's doing a group demo where he's getting people's fingers stuck together. And he's telling them there's magnets in your fingers. There's bailing wire wrapped around your fingers. There's super glue between them. Now try in vain to pull them apart. And out of those 300, about 30 sit there going, oh, my God, my hands won't separate. And the other 270 are going, oh, my God, his hands won't separate. Something's going on here. Right? So then the hypnotist says, hey, your hands can separate. Now, if your hands got stuck together, that means you have a unique mind and you're going to have a lot of fun up here as you volunteer to have the best seat in the house. Come on up here. Get in on the fun. You're going to experience that secret experience of hypnosis that these other people just didn't quite qualify for. Now, they don't usually say that out loud, but there are implications. Right. And then he gets them up there and he takes them through some other Real simple things, like I want you to just imagine what if you were applying, uh, uh, auditioning for a role in a movie, right? Everybody wants that. Um, And so we need you to, uh, in this movie, uh, act like you're seeing something really funny. All right? So laugh as loud as you can. So they're all putting on a show of how good they can laugh. You need to be cold now. Oh, now it's so hot. It's so hot. Fan yourself. And so they're shivering there. And eventually this sort of play acting leads over into buying into it as reality more and more so that by the end of the show, the hypnotist can look at the really, oh, and by the way, the ones that they go, oh, no, I'm out of here. They go back to their seats, right? And Eventually, there are, are some up there on the stage who are so into it that they completely will believe that they're Johnny Depp. I did a, a show where I said, I need you to get up here and, and be Johnny Depp. And later on, the guy watched the video and he's like, I don't believe that I did that, except that I can see it. And I hate, hate Johnny Depp. <laughs> 
So if I had said to him at the beginning, hey, I'm going to need you to pretend to be Johnny Depp, he'd say, oh, no way. No, I'm out. Right? But because I, I waltzed him gently to the cliff, he went along with it. Because we did frog boiling, hmm. he went along with it. So, uh, you know, if my, if my dad, the first time that he met my mother, had said, hey, let's get married and have four children, she would have laughed in his face. But he didn't say that. He said, let's go out to dinner. Let's go see a movie. Let's do that again. Let's hang out together. Uh, how about I come by your apartment? Let's play some chess, right? Um, they, they courted gradually and eventually ended up having four children. That's the same kind of thing that happens. Um, people don't set out with, I, yeah, totally. I get that Q is JFK who didn't really die and that, that Trump is a hero trying to save children and that all this has to do with lizard people. But they, they slowly practice believing those things. And just like at the hypnosis show, a lot of people don't volunteer a lot of people don't get up there on the stage to give it a shot. And some of those up there on the stage go, oh, no, I'm out of here. Uh, no, this just doesn't work for me. So there, and I, I don't know exactly the profile of the QAnon uh, type. And I know that a lot of people are saying, well, I'm, I'm concerned because they didn't seem like somebody to get into this. But, but much like cult membership, um, there's a certain personality type that can uh, go for that. And, um, and of course, you know, I don't want it to seem like I'm putting people in a box because there's, there's degrees, <laughs> right? Uh, I was a fundamentalist Christian in my youth, so I can, I can say, okay, yeah, maybe, maybe I could have ended up in a cult. Those of us who aren't in cults, those of us who don't really understand it, have a lot of trouble getting it. Um, I happened to live in Waco, by the way, when the ATF was laying siege to David Koresh. David Koresh's compound, by the way, was not in Waco proper. <laughs> Waco was just the closest big dot on a map. Hmm. Um, uh, it was actually, I think, was it Valley Mills? I can't remember. Anyway, it was, it was in the boonies. But I heard the helicopters go overhead, you know, that morning that it all, all broke. And I remember this expert, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to use air quotes, and of course, you know, here I am rejecting the views of experts, <laughs> um, saying, oh yeah, well these people are going to turn on him very quickly. It will, it will, it will become obvious to them that that there's a bunch of powerful men with guns around him and that he is powerless and, and they'll turn him in. And I sat there and I, I said, this guy has no idea how cult mentality works. Um, the fact that they were threatened caused them to double down on their beliefs. And this is a, a well-documented psychological phenomenon and why it's almost impossible to win an argument on the internet. When you challenge most people's beliefs, instead of changing them or rejecting them, even when they have clear evidence, people dig in harder. And I think, isn't there even a, a study or two that shows that well-educated people have the problem worse than lesser-educated people of digging in when they're wrong? I, I haven't encountered that, but it's, it's possible. Um, I do know uh, there have been studies done with, for instance, psychology grad students where they are taught and shown clear evidence of a counter counterintuitive notion um, and then immediately after still apply that counterintuitive notion. Hmm. Even when they have just learned... <laughs> about the fact that it's counterintuitive and that things don't work that way, which, which really makes me despair. Um, and, and, you know, it's, 
and it's really easy, by the way, to to be somebody who's analyzing all this and laughing about it and saying, oh, ha ha, look at all those other people. And and I have to occasionally, you know, check myself and go, okay, wait a minute, wait a minute. Am I falling prey to these things? Um, you know, I, once or twice a year, I go ahead and forward a meme on Facebook and then go, oh my God, why did I not fact check that? Well, it appealed to my biases. It felt true to me. And, and so I'm, I, I, I work really hard to, to keep myself from uh, forwarding anything if I haven't tried to find some kind of verification for it. Uh, but I, I screw up. Um, everyone does. So there, there's degrees. So uh, and, uh, what is the degree of, of responsibility that individuals have to have in this case? I mean, do you, do you have to have an interest that you're unconscious of that you have to get right with yourself? Oh, wait a minute. My interest is what is leading me to believe nonsense. Or is it just simply like, like you said, the slow boil. Uh, I mean, who, who hops in the pot, I guess is the question. Are you responsible for hopping in the pot in the first place? Right. Well, I mean, yeah, I think, I think that you are responsible for, for hopping in the pot. I think that everybody is, um, is responsible for policing their own thinking. Um, I think, and, and, I believe that everyone should, you know, should, that's a weird word. Um, so if everybody else were like me, which is what should means, um, I've, I've studied logic. I've studied logical fallacies. I've studied how the mind works. And I do my best, recognizing that I'm, I'm never going to be perfect at it, I do my best to to be on the lookout for nonsense that my unconscious mind might propose. <laughs> um, in fact, there's, there's a, a book called Thinking Fast, Thinking Slow, or it might be Thinking Fast and Slow. Um, I never can quite remember the title, by Daniel Kahneman. And he's talking about the mind as consisting of two systems. And they're similar to what psychologists have called the conscious and the unconscious for a long time. But he calls them system one and system two. And system one is what we've always called the unconscious. You know, we tend to think, oh, the conscious is the important part. We, the conscious mind thinks it's the CEO. The conscious mind is not the CEO. The conscious mind is the receptionist. Uh, System one thinks very fast, and it uses all kinds of shortcuts. For example, if we have noticed that members of a particular ethnicity, um, in our experience, have tended to be uh, uh, really good, I'm trying to pick something that doesn't actually fit, and it's almost impossible, really good at screwing in light bulbs. All right, then our our system one builds a shortcut that says, "Oh, this person is in that ethnicity. I bet they're good at, at screwing in light bulbs." And we may have built this up through personal experience. We may have built this up through seeing this stereotype presented again and again in our media. We may have have built it up through hearing jokes. Um, about how members of that ethnicity are really good at screwing in light bulbs. So our system one creates the shortcut, the stereotype. And it's up to our system two, which thinks very slowly um, and puzzles things out and um, has to be trained, really, to, to handle logic effectively. It's up to system two to go, no, wait a minute. That's, that's a stereotype, and while it may be true that many members of that ethnicity are really good at changing light bulbs, 
Um, that doesn't mean that this individual is good at changing light bulbs. So in, in my mind anyway, it's, it's that logical ability to put on the brakes to stop and say, wait a minute, whoa, okay, this new idea, even if it seems to fit my maps, how accurate are my maps? Maybe I need to recognize that no map is 100% accurate. Um, a 100% accurate map of London would be completely useless because it would be exactly the size of London. So just recognizing that our maps are not the territory. And then allowing ourselves to, to apply that, especially when something appeals to our biases, is, I think, the, the responsibility that every citizen has. And unfortunately, I don't think people are, are trained in this. Um, I will say there's a flip side to it. I think that it is the responsibility of experts and educated people to, uh, to avoid arrogance. The medical profession, for example, has made some really bad foul-ups. And the fact that for a long time, and it, it's, it's changing, but for a long time, medical doctors really hung on to their position of authority. I am the authority. I'm the one you're supposed to listen to. If you don't listen to me, you're a complete idiot right? Um, and they, they held on to that for a long time, despite having made some horrific, life-threatening, life-devastating errors throughout history. So I, I think it's important for experts to, to have a reality check, to not be too arrogant, and to recognize that they can be fallible and that it's okay because that means it's okay for somebody else to go, oh, this doctor is fallible, even though they are really smart, and I probably should listen to them most of the, the time. I, I have two more questions for you. Um, and thank you for going overtime with me here, because it's a I half hour. More What's that? I have 15 more answers. Oh, excellent. Uh, well, so one question is, uh, you know, just in terms of things we're seeing online, like a, a propaganda film type thing, um, are you saying that we don't have to worry about subliminal messages hidden in frequencies? We don't really have to worry about even speech patterns of people, because I notice a lot of people are fast talkers. They railroad through things just like Trump, right? So you go, wait, hey, wait a minute, what did he say? And by the time you're done... You know, you don't even, it, it's like you, it doesn't even matter what they said. You, you've forgiven it or something. Sure. <laughs> uh, does well, that stuff play into it or do we not have to worry about that? So, um, I'm, like I said, I'm not that concerned with, with subliminal messages the way that we typically think of them. However, um, you're right. There's a reason why, why fast talk is called fast talk. And, um, I actually know a hypnotist from New York whose entire style is based on fast talk. He talks so fast that people's conscious mind doesn't have a chance to reject his suggestions. Um, we, but we have to also watch out for um, uh, logical gaps that you could drive a truck through that people often overlook. Um, I don't know if you're, I'm surely you watched a, uh, ancient aliens at some point yes right i love that show oh my gosh it's so entertaining <laughs> uh, and and uh, you know it's like take a drink every time they say according to ancient astronaut theory right um but what i noticed was they would they would present some big mystery and then say perhaps the answer to this can be found in the wilds of arizona <laughs> and then cut to a break. They cut to a commercial. So you're going, oh, okay, wow, after the commercial, they're going to tell me about something in Arizona that explains this thing in ancient Babylon. Wow, so cool. And then they come back from the break, and they start talking about Arizona, and it's got not a goddamn thing to do with Babylon. <laughs> it does not explain it. 
but but we have created a cause and effect chain that's an illusion in our minds. And so there was an experiment done with uh, um, trying to persuade people to let someone cut in line at a Xerox machine. And so they said, what are the most effective techniques? Uh, one technique was, hey, can you uh, let me cut in line? All right, that was the baseline. Another one was, hey, I'm running really late. Can you let me cut in line? Right, giving a reason. And the other one was, hey, can you let me cut in line because I need to make copies? Presenting a reason that's not a reason as though it were a reason, right? Because I need to make copies. Well, so what, bud? Everybody does. They found that that was nearly as effective as actually giving a reason. Phrasing things as though there were a reason. And, and you wonder what this has to do with hypnosis? Well, we hypnotists will say things like, because you're here in my office, I know that you, you sincerely want to quit smoking, and I know that you'll be very successful with this program. Well, that doesn't really logically follow, but it sounds very logical. And unless their, their watchdog is there ready to bark at everything, people's unconscious mind goes, oh, yeah, okay, yeah, that kind of makes sense. Uh, so what I what I watch out for is not so much subliminal messages as associations that are built up in people's minds. And, and one of my favorite things to do is sit back and watch movies and TV shows and notice associations that are made that influence the way we think. For example, you have all sorts of racial stereotypes in movies. You, you have, and, and not just racial stereotypes, body stereotypes. Um, you almost never see a, a valiant, serious hero who is overweight. Overweight people are either funny. They might be the protagonist. They might even come up with a great thing, but, but they're funny. Uh, or they are weaselly and weak. <laughs> and, and the big, big alpha male hero might be might have challenge from one of those guys, but but they're not worth beating up. They're going to end up um, uh, getting eaten by the monster or something, uh, hoist on their own petard. The big alpha male villain, though, that's who we're really going to fight. So you can point this out in one movie, and people go, "Oh, that's just one movie. That's just one one portrayal." But if every portrayal of an overweight male falls into those categories, <laughs> And you never have an exception that subliminally, if you want to call it that, to me, that's the real subliminal messaging. Um, I don't know if you've noticed that uh, cigarettes are back on our screens. Yeah. Yeah. Remember like a decade ago, I think, or maybe or 15 or two decades ago, perhaps you didn't see people smoking on television. Um, in fact, the, uh, the one character on the X-Files who smoked was called the cigarette smoking man. And he was terribly evil. And he was always smoking in front of a no smoking sign, right? <laughs> the worst possible associate. And that was the only way that network TV allowed a character to smoke. Then came HBO. Uh, showtime then came streaming so uh i believe it was hbo i could be wrong that made uh, made that little show called Mad Men. they allowed constant smoking because it was a historical piece right it was a period piece and so people were smoking constantly and that seems to have opened the floodgates to uh um now you have well, you actually had people complain uh, about Stranger Things having too much smoking in it because they're like, look, Stranger Things is in part a kid's show. Um, you know, a lot of these characters are, are young and the whole family is watching the show. Stop showing so many cigarettes. Uh, but again and again, I've noticed uh, on uh, streaming shows set in, in the past or in the present, or even in the future, 
um, people will be smoking for no good reason or even commenting things like, oh gosh, wow, I'm really glad to get this cigarette. And people are bonding over cigarettes. So not only are they normalizing them, they are providing essentially suggestions that, hey, it's okay to smoke cigarettes. Um, These things are are common. It's all right. Hey, look, it makes you feel good. And occasionally they'll throw in a character who struggles with it or quits or whatever. But even then, they're telling the narrative that, man, it is really hard to quit those things. Uh, So, And and this is near and dear to my heart because I help a lot of people quit smoking. And I basically have to dehypnotize them from all of their beliefs that a lifetime of of television propaganda (laughs) in fact more than a lifetime um it was in the 1920s that the cigarette industries hired uh edward bernays who was sigmund freud's nephew to start using psychological tricks to get people to smoke so uh, uh i'm i'm very much aware of those things but i'm always watching out for those associations and in fact, if an association can kind of make you laugh, then it tends to slip past that map maker. Because if, if we're fact checking a joke, it's not going to be funny, right? But if, if we suspend that disbelief for a moment, jokes can be funny. So when we're laughing, we're generally not checking. So if you come up with a clever, funny term that creates an association, um, then people will laugh at it and go, I don't, I don't really believe that. But they hear it enough times, and they laugh at it enough times that they begin to believe that all environmentalists are wacko environmentalists. They begin to believe that all feminists are feminazis. They begin to believe that, uh, that Marco Rubio is little Marco. Um, they begin to believe that Hillary Clinton is crooked Hillary because those associations are put in. And, and it's amazing to me, actually, that it's done so overtly and so crudely and clumsily, and yet it is devastatingly effective. Hmm. That's, that's why I don't worry about a fancy subliminal message. Yeah. Liminal well, messages are, are doing the work. <laughs> by the way, uh, just, be, just because we like to fact check here on this show, uh, AMC is, is. AMC, thank you. Yeah, thank it was you, filmed yeah. by Lionsgate and it aired on AMC, uh, Mad Men. So, yeah. well, then maybe you've just answered my last question, which is, um, you know. That would be efficient. <laughs> is it possible that. That this is that uh, at least this the QAnon thing is um, is a psyop is or is is that how would we know I guess but uh, uh, does does it uh, have the earmarks <laughs> of something coordinated to get you to either vote a certain way or overlook certain things in politics um, or is it all just from some message board somewhere? You know, that's, that's a, uh, wow, that's a great question. Um, and uh, I would rather believe that the world is ruled by incompetence than evil, even though I recognize that evil and organized evil does exist. Um, could it be a psyop? Sure, but that, that feels like almost the conspiracy theory below the conspiracy theories. Yes. Uh, I, but it wouldn't have it, to be like an official it, thing. It could just be like some dudes from Breitbart News or something, you know? Right. Well, I mean, I, I think that, yeah, I mean, there are actual psyops and things that the, that the CIA has, has tried and, and all sorts of propaganda. We're being bombarded with messages all the time. Um, I, think, I think that QAnon probably was a case of a perfect storm. Um, certain ideas and, and ways of interacting coming together. Um, to create this, I suspect that it's actually um, more brilliant and more effective at what it does than anything that the people who run psyops could have come up with. Huh? <laughs> that's, 
that's that's where my money's on but you know um there's no prize in the end so yeah that's that's what i've just decided to believe and from now on <laughs> i will generalize everything to match it i will distort all facts to fit it and i will delete anything that doesn't fit my idea about it well welcome to twitter all right james <laughs> hazelrig everybody uh if people want to get in contact with you what's the best way uh well i I teach courses in hypnotic storytelling, which is a form of propaganda <laughs> um, <laughs> at uh, hypnoticstorytellingcourse.com. Awesome. Well, thank you again for doing this and for going extra long. Um, God, I, I could pick your brain pretty much all day long, but I will, <laughs> I will not do that because I'm sure you have more to do than I do. So, uh, <laughs> <laughs> Thanks a bunch. Thanks a bunch. It's been fun, Jeremy.